Good morning. Glad you're here this morning to worship with us. We are in a message series where we're looking at uh, stories, and at the heart of each of the stories we're looking at is the grace of God, and grace is favor from God that you haven't earned. That's, that's what it is to receive God's grace, that's what it is to give grace, and you experience grace when you need it the most. And so we're digging into these stories, and we're looking at circumstances, situations, things that people have done uh, in their lives in the Scriptures, and uh, there, there are cause for concern as to what these folks have you know, done, crimes they've committed, things that have gone on. And in contrast to their deeds, we see the grace of God, and, and that, that's how it is, and that's when we experience grace the most, is when we need it. And the way it works and the way we are as human beings, um, when somebody else needs grace, it's a lot tougher to give it than, than it is when we need grace. It's, it's very easy to want it and really hope for it and long for it. Movies, you know, they're interesting. They give us a vantage point that we don't get in everyday life, and much of the time, a screenwriter and director, they will show you some horrible, dastardly deed that one of the characters has done that causes you to seethe and want justice. This is the way they draw you in. Justice is a part of who God made us to be. It's, it's a part of our uh, makeup on the inside that reflects His image in us. We have this justive, justice motive. When we see wrong... We really want it to be become right. And when you see somebody get away with a horrible crime in a movie, you, you immediately start rooting for them to get caught and get their due. This is the way we're wired. And so that's, that's what happens in a lot of movies. You see this going on. We can see what the main characters can't see. We get pulled into it. And now we're invested emotionally in the person getting caught and paying for what they've done. This is, this is just our wiring, and it plays out in this uh, as we go along. In Scripture, we have this ability to have the same kind of vantage point. We can see what's going on. And uh, in this morning's story, we see one of these situations unfolding. Uh, it's found in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to dig into this story. We're, today, we're looking at the story of King David. Now, he is widely considered the greatest king in the history of Israel. He replaced first king, he was king number two. First king, the people chose. Second king, God chose. And it was said that David had a man, was a man after God's own heart. He had a heart like God's. Um, but to look at him on the outside, it was kind of like if you're choosing you know, sides on the basketball court for a pickup game, you know, he's, he's the shortest, he's scrawny, you're not thinking he's going to really help the team. So you, you don't pick him, you know, you pick you pick somebody else, but he got picked by God. <laughs> you know, he wasn't the obvious pick, but he got picked by God because of his heart, because God could see past the outward stuff and was looking at his heart. David came from very humble beginnings. Uh, he was a people's king. He was a shepherd, very common blue-collar kind of job in, in that day. Uh, he guarded his father's flocks. And through that responsibility, God trained him. 
in ways that he couldn't have been developed or trained in other ways for the role of king. And eventually, um, his training sets the stage for an epic showdown between he and Goliath, and you know that's where we get David and Goliath from. It's, it's, it actually happened in history. Defeated this, this giant with a sling and a stone. And he was extremely honored in his world, in his culture, in his country. People loved him, and he had a, a, a great name. And it's, it's interesting that when he became king, God gave him this amazing promise. Here's the promise that God gave him, 2 Samuel 7. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So this is a promise from God, and this is what God did. God gave him a tremendous name. And a good name is what most of us desire. Healthy people, we want a good name. We want, uh, when our name is mentioned, we want the immediate thoughts and impression that comes to mind to be good. Hey, this is it's a, it's a good, strong name. This person is a good, strong person. Um, because that's what happens when you mention someone's name. You get a flood of impression. You get a flood of thoughts. And it's kind of like naming a child. You know, some names you warm up to, some names you don't warm up to because you've known someone with that name in the past and it's sort of shaded it somewhat. Well, healthy people want good names that aren't stained by their actions and, uh, or by the gossip or slander from other people. So what happens is choices we make daily compound over time to give us a name, a good or bad name. And the way it works is a good name can disintegrate in a moment's time with one bad decision. It can just go away, just like that. And this is what happened uh, to David. David's sin and the attempt to cover it up. We're going to look at this. One spring, David had been very successful in battle, fighting off their, the enemies of Israel, leading the country to do that. Well, spring, after winter, obviously, uh, is the time when kings and troops would go off to war to fight the battles. Um, and he decides to stay home one spring, which is just kind of the flow of life uh, in his kingdom at the time. He decides to stay home, uh, should have been out leading the troops, and he, as he's lounging one day while his troops are fighting, he takes a leisurely walk on the roof of his palace, and he looks down and notices a beautiful woman bathing, and he acts on his impulses. He finds out who she is, says David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. So David, this is a, this is a very wrong choice he makes here. He takes advantage of his uh, position of his privileges as kings, and he takes this woman who's another man's wife, commits adultery, and after the encounter, 
A while later, he learns that she's pregnant. Uh, she's pregnant with his child. His, remember, his, her wife is off fighting with the troops where David should be. Okay, this, this, is, this story, doesn't it just sort of, it gets to you, and it just it's, it bothers you. This man with all this power, the more power you have, the more wrong you can do, the more impact your wrong has. But he makes this choice, and after Bathsheba becomes pregnant, he starts working to cover up what he's done. Uh, he begins to work a strategy to cover and to protect his name. So first what he does is, he, he brings, he commands the, the commander of the army to send Uriah home, hoping that Uriah would go home, sleep with his wife, then no one would know that it's his baby, okay? So uh, Uriah comes home. Of course, the, he has to come home. David's the king. He, he calls for him to come home. He tries to convince Uriah when he reports to him to go home, enjoy some time with his wife. But out of loyalty to his men, Uriah refuses. Oh, my men, they're fighting. They're fighting on, on the battlefield, and I, I refuse to enjoy this comfort when my men are at war. <laughs> Very loyal man. Next, David uh, tries to get him drunk, and he gets him drunk, but no effect. He, Uriah sleeps at the, the porch of the palace and refuses to go home to his wife. He won't take that comfort. Uh, while his men are fighting. Then David does the unthinkable. L look at what he did. Second Samuel 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And again, at the king's command, Joab does what he told him to do. He, he, he's the king. And Uriah is killed in the battle. So David, when David thinks he's covered this up, when the news reaches Bathsheba, she mourns for her husband, and then David takes her as his wife. Despicable. The baby's born, David thinks he's successfully covered up what he does, and then God begins to work his plan to uncover what's gone on. And this, this is the way it is in our lives. We try to cover, we try to cover, but God sees. And he will bring out what he wants to come to the light. He sends Nathan, an aging prophet, to David. Now, Nathan does what screenwriters and directors do. So Nathan tells David a story. And this is a story he tells him in 2 Samuel 12. said, Nathan came to David, the prophet, and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, David responded in this moment, like, just like we respond in a movie. Here's the story. He's watching it unfold. He's, he's seething. He's seething at this selfish, rich man who refuses to use one of his many sheep 
for the, the celebration, and he takes the poor man's only lamb. Then David's anger was great, it says in 2 Samuel 12. It was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. David wants to see this man pay, just like we do. We get pulled into the story. We want them to pay. This is how we're wired. But look at what Nathan says next. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God's seen the whole thing. He brings it into the light. David is confronted with what he's done. And we're going to look at, in a few moments, how David worked through this because it's an example for us when we're in the same situation. There were serious consequences for David. You can read about them uh, in the rest of the story. But surprisingly, God doesn't give up on him. God doesn't just cast him aside. He's not finished with David, so he's not done. We hear a story like this, though, and we think, that is horrible. I would never do that. That, What what is he thinking? We watch it unfold. Um, We humans, we have this habit of comparing ourselves with others. And when we compare ourselves with others who have done worse things than we have, at least outwardly. We, we look at their faults, we look at what they've done, and it makes us feel better about ourselves. We sort of pump ourselves up that way. And we, we think it can improve our standing with God. We sort of think if we, if we do this. What we tend to think is, I'm better than most. We have this habit of comparing, and we come to conclusions of, you know, I'm better than I'm better than most of the people that I know. And it's very interesting, though, that as people come to know Christ and they begin to walk with him and they get to know him and they get into the scriptures and they read it and they soak it in and they let it begin to change their perspective and the way they think. What's interesting is that's not what you hear mature Christians saying, I'm better than most. What you hear mature Christians say is, I'm among the worst. Paul was a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He started many churches throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. He was a key figure in launching the Christian movement after Christ's death. He'd done a lot of good for God's kingdom. Amazing things. God worked through him and used him to really make a difference in his world. And look at what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, here's a man that really understands God. He really knows him. He, he, he has been used by God to... God's spoken through him. He's given him the words to write down that we learn from today. And if you were to talk to most mature Christians in the world today, uh, those who have grown very close to God, they would echo what Paul says here. I've heard Billy Graham say something similar. You know, I'm, I'm among the worst. 
I struggle. The more time you spend in the light of God's Word and in His presence, the more you become aware of how short you fall of His holiness and perfection. And so this becomes something that you have to deal with. And this is important for us as we, as we walk with God. It's important because it's when you need the grace of God that you experience it. And it's when you realize you need His grace that you experience His grace. And then that begins to change you from the inside out. The way that you think about yourself, the way that you treat other people, the way that you handle your relationships and respond to the things that are going on in the lives of those around you. You see, the only thing that really matters is where I stand before God, not where I stand in comparison to other people. To have a right relationship with God, that's the number one thing. We must understand our desperate need for grace in order to have that right relationship with Him. So as people walk with with the Lord uh, over time, they realize how much of a separation there is between God, who He is, His perfection and holiness, and who we are. We need the contrast of our sin to understand the depth of God's grace. It's like that picture on the front of your program. The the intent was a tremendous amount of contrast between the recipient of that robe and ring and the recipient himself. He doesn't seem like a guy who would be in a royal robe. But that's, that's the intent. And we need this contrast in order to really understand the depth of God's grace. The light of the stars shine brightest against the black night. That, that's when you see the stars. You don't see them in the light. You don't see them in the daytime. If you try to justify yourself and excuse your sin, you never really see God's grace in your life. You never experience it. You never appreciate it. And at, at Christmas time, you know, we're, we're talking about in these stories, next week, it's, it's going to be, uh, we're not going to be looking at a story like this. It's going to be all celebration about the gift that Jesus is to us. But to really celebrate Jesus' gift and what he's done for us, we have to understand the depths of what he's done. We really have to be able to, to grasp that. Christmas time, we're supposed to be merry and bright. And a lot of the songs you hear in department stores and on 103.5 are all cheery. They're cheery songs. They're they're written to help us feel good about life. It's a good time of the year where we can enjoy family and friends. And they play those in stores so that you spend, you know, you feel good and you spend your money and, hey, let's do this. Um, The problem is that sometimes while all of this is going on, the shell of Christmas is happening. We're dim and gloomy on the inside. We're, we're struggling with what's going on inside of us because of sin. And it's a real effort to be bright and merry and cheery on the outside. Um, what's interesting is if you go back to the earlier Christmas hymns from the 1800s, they show the contrast that I'm talking about. They, they reveal it. They, they talk about Jesus coming, being born, and why he came and we, he was born. This is uh, some of the lyrics from Joy to the World. 
No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. We looked the first week at the curse, the result of the first sin of Adam and Eve. And Jesus came to, to shine his light on our sin and to show us how gracious God is. That's why we can look at our sin. That's why we even have the courage to face our sin, because of the grace that God gives. When we're gloomy because of wrong we've done, God graciously provides a way to brighten. But we must do things His way to find the joy. To, to get on the other side of the gloom to the joy, we have to do things His way. And in Psalm 51, we have a unique opportunity. We're given an x-ray into what was going on in David's heart after he did this dastardly thing, after he did this horrible thing and committed adultery and murder. And it shows us how to deal with sin and fully experience the grace of God. David shows us, first of all, to offer a full confession to God. We offer confession. We don't try to hide. We don't try to cover it up. That was his knee-jerk. That's what he did. That's our knee-jerk. That's what we tend to do. We try to hide. Here, here's the title given for Psalm 51, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is the context of this psalm. It's like reading his personal diary. <laughs> we, get, we get to see what's going on in his heart and how he responded to God and what God did in response to his honesty before him. It's David's confession to God, and it shows us how to go to God so that we can experience the grace of God. I don't know if you're sensing a need for his grace this, this, but this morning, but I know sometime you will. Uh, in, in the future, in the near future, possibly. And so this shows us how to do it. To get forgiveness and gain freedom from sin, first of all, I must refuse to excuse my sin. I have to just lay it out there. Psalm 51, 1 through 6, it talks about this. The first two verses say, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Basically, He's using, David's using different images uh, to talk about the need for cleansing. When, when you're stained by sin, you know you need cleansing. When your soul has been stained, when you've been shot through the heart, this is what's going on with David, he's been shot through the heart with the truth about a sin he's committed, that story that Nathan told him that grabbed him, and he realized the wrong he had done. It's easy after that to put yourself sort of in a prison and wall yourself off from God thinking, he's never going to forgive. He's just never going to give me grace here because I'm beyond the grace of God. There's no way he should forgive me. Why would he forgive me? Why would he do that? I've been there. And that's where David is in this moment. He, he shows, though, that no matter what you've done, you can approach God because his love is unfailing. And he has a track record of mercy. This is our God. This is God. This is how he is. When we sin, cleansing is what we need because we have stained our reputation and our soul. And it's an indelible stain. It's something you just can't wash out with the detergent we normally use. What we try to do usually is make up for it by doing right. We try to make up for the sin. I'm going to do good. I'm going to do right. I'm going to, I'm going to do better. I'm going to pay penance. I'm going to pay the price for this. But the only thing we can do really is turn to God and ask for cleansing. 
from the sin we've committed. That's all we can really do. This is what David does. He makes a full confession to God. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, I deserve the worst. There is no spin here in David's words. Of course, he's sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, and he's done horrible things against them. But he's dealing with his relationship with God here. And there's no spin in this, trying to make it look better. He's just honestly going before God and saying, I've done the unacceptable. And he turns to God for mercy and forgiveness. Next, David shows that we should ask God to restore. That's what I should do. If I catch myself in sin, if I've committed sin, I need God's grace, I need to ask him to restore me. Now, this is an important thing to understand the way God works here. Because this is related to the way God changes us. And he changes us as we rely on him to do that rather than through any effort of our own. Look at Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David's not giving us action steps for a self-improvement plan. That's not, that's not what he's doing. And that's not really the way it works. He knows that God is the only one that can restore him. And it's the same with us. God's the only one who can restore us. One of the traps that we fall into when we're trying to change, when there's a sin pattern that we're trying to break out of, one of the traps we fall into is, I'm going to try harder next time not to do it again. I'm going to try with everything I got. We think things like, you know, I'm going to try harder to speak with kindness to my kids. Oh, I hate that when I do that. That is so wrong to just take my words and, and crush them with them. Or I, I'm going to give it everything I got so I don't blow up again and lose my temper and let the people at work have it or let the neighbors have it or whatever, whoever you, you let them have it, you know, I'm... I'm just going to give it everything I got so I don't do that again. And You know, we're working. We're trying harder to make sure it doesn't happen again. Or we think, you know, I'm just I'm going to do this tedious work. I slack off and the company pays and it's not right. And I'm just, I'm going to do this this time. I'm just going to do what I need to do and we try harder. This is a track to defeat. We, we give up over time because we lack the power to really change. We, we need somebody else to help with this. And it's interesting, something I've learned in the last 37 years of walking with God is this. Lasting change is not the result of my effort. It's the grace of God that changes me. It's His grace that makes me a different person. It's not my effort. Now, here's how. When I sin, I refuse to excuse or downplay what I've done. That's what David did. I name it for what it is. You know, what I said, Father, was harsh and unkind. Will you forgive me? If I've been unkind in my words to the kids, I go to the people I've sinned against and I ask their forgiveness. If it's the kids, kids, Daddy was harsh and unkind to you. Will you forgive me for that? I make this a habit. Whenever I mess up, I confess to God and anyone else I've sinned against. 
And then I ask God to restore me. He's promised to cleanse me. He also renews the spirit within me when I go to him and ask him for help. And he brings the joy as I work through this process. It's the grace of God that forgives me time after time that makes me want to change, that works the changes in me as I go through this process over and over again. The path we often take to get over our sin, to deal with our sin, to change, is uh, besides trying harder, is to try to pay for it ourselves. I can wallow in my sin like a pig in the mud. But it doesn't make up for my sin. It doesn't really help. Beating myself, doesn't, it, beating myself up doesn't do anything to pay for the sin. We think, I'm going to do enough good to pay for it or whatever we think. How do you know when you've done enough good? How, how do you know? You're in this constant state of flux. And you're not quite sure. You've, that is torture <laughs> in your soul to try to make, well, okay, how much did this weigh? I'm going to try to balance it out. This was really wrong, what I said or what I did, but how can I balance it out? With an, how, do you, how do you measure that? We can't. We can't measure it. So God, by His grace, has already paid the penalty for our sin. He's paid for it. On the cross in Jesus Christ. Says he, scripture says he took it all on himself. And we can be sure of forgiveness because of God's mercy that he's poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's a passage from Psalm 32. It's a sequel to Psalm 51, even though in the order it's, it's not. It's before Psalm 51. But here's the sequel. This is what we can expect. This is what David, this is another Psalm from David. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You you forgave my sins, God, as I turned to you. This is how God changes us. It's his grace and forgiveness when we turn to him that makes us want to please him more and more. This is how you come to Christ. You recognize your need, the wrong that you've done. You recognize that you need to turn from going your own way and give your life to following Christ. And then from then on, it's the grace of God that he pours out every day in your life that begins to change you and make you a different person. On the day we die, we become perfect. But thankfully, between now and then, we can experience the grace of God daily as we realize our need and go to him. Then finally, David says, offer sacrifices that pleases God. Uh, Verse 16, 17, for for you will not delight in sacrifice. God will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't want us to be religious or anything else to make up for sin. He wants us to humbly admit our wrong and be broken by it and realize our need for him. In the Christmas rush, don't focus on the outward celebrations and miss the inward reality of what God has done to pour out his grace in your heart. If life seems gloomy and dim rather than merry and bright, check to see if there's something you need to get right with God. Check to see if you need to go to him, freely admit you're wrong, and and get it right with him. God will give you grace, and he'll give you joy as you walk with him. 
and he will help you to grow and change through it all. So I'd like to wrap up the message today uh, by looking at some next steps. If you would, take out the program uh, as the band comes up and gets ready to lead us. Take out the program and look at the connection card in there, if you would, and on the back of that, there's some next steps. One of those would be to memorize Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Just ask God for that. Just memorize it and pray it. Um, Number two step would be take time to get my heart right with God. Maybe there's something you need to get straightened out with him, something you need to deal with before him that's creating the the dimness and the gloom inside of you. Um, Take the time to get it right for God. David David showed us how there. And then uh, another step would be to share God's grace. So it's harder to give grace to others than it is to receive it ourselves. We want, you know, the gifts. But part of growing up is learning to give it, and that's what God will do. As you experience His grace, He wants you to, to hand that to others, to channel it to other people. So be gracious toward someone this week. Maybe somebody has, you're, you're upset with them, they've offended you, and you can just be grace. You can give the grace of God that you've experienced to him, from him to them. And another way to share God's grace is to invite friends and family to the celebration next week, the family Christmas celebration. Um, there's an invite card in your bulletin in your program you can use, and uh, you can take that and share that, and people can begin to experience the truth of God's grace and the gift that Jesus is for us as we celebrate it together. And then finally, another step would be to give to the uh, Christmas offering today or make plans before January 5th to do that uh, as we pitch in to really extend uh, ourselves and bless ministries and people beyond uh, our walls here uh, with uh, the, the good news about Jesus and what he's done. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and especially your grace, God, that We do not earn, we cannot earn, but you pour it out when we need it, God. And I pray that you'd help us to understand our need for you, for cleansing, forgiveness, so that we can find the joy. There's no other way to really experience the joy of forgiveness other than admitting our need for it. And so, God, we come before you and ask for your help to take the steps that please you, Lord in doing uh, what's right and good before you and in making ourselves right with you and asking you to make us right. We, We ask for your help in this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.